Let's bow our heads for prayer. Oh God, we are gathered together this evening to look towards you, to be lifted towards higher ground. Father, may you, may your spirit guide this service. May your spirit direct. We just ask, Father, that your name would be glorified through this evening. And if there's any good that comes out of this evening, may you be praised for what you have done and the work that you are doing and will do in this community as a result of these lives that are sitting here today. So we ask your presence and blessing upon this meeting in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening and greetings to each of you in Jesus' name this evening. As I look over this group of people, I'm looking at a group of people with whom I have relationships. And I consider you to be my brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's something that is very valuable to me. It's very valuable to me that I have these people in my life who are part of the community in which I live and are part of my walk with the Lord. I believe this evening that you meant what you just sang. The first song we sang, Oh, for a heart to praise my God. I believe that you are a people tonight who have a heart to praise your God and desire to have the kind of heart that that song spoke about. And I'm thankful for that because I need that kind of people in my life. You said I'm pressing on the upward way. You said I want to scale the utmost height. What I share with you this evening, I share with you from perspective that that's where you're at tonight and that's where you want to go. That's where you want to be. You want to scale the utmost height. The tech committee gave me an impossible task tonight. I think I could probably have a message each night for a week on this subject. And I'm condensing it into two messages. And so there's going to be some things that I'm going to say that I'm not going to be able to quantify. And I just ask that you not just throw them out because I don't quantify them but you use them as something to think about and ponder. I consider it a privilege to have this opportunity because I care about who we are as a people and who we are presenting ourselves as in this community and in the community that you're living in and as churches. And I care about whether my children and grandchildren will have a God-honoring church when I'm gone. And I hope you care about those things too. And so it's worthwhile for me to share this topic, even though I don't stand up here without fear. I've heard since I was little that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I believe that an ounce of solution is worth a pound of prevention. Maybe that's somewhat the same thing, or maybe you wonder what I'm saying by that. But if we have a solution to focus on, then that can take us to a place where we don't need prevention. Why do we need discipleship? I'd like to start out with the first message by giving kind of a logical or attempt to give a logical groundwork for why we need discipleship. There was a time when years ago when people spent their evenings sitting on the front porch with their neighbors. And as they sat on their front porch with their neighbors, they would discuss the things that happened in their community, the things that happened throughout the week. They would talk about the issues that were happening in their community both the good and the bad. And they would bond in relationship as they did that. 
Men in the community would spend days working side by side in the fields to harvest crops, to do things together. Life was full of hard work and sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, we live in a time today that is different from what most of the history of the world has been. Most of the history of the world has been hard work and sacrifice. People needed each other. They needed each other to survive. We're living in a time that is in some ways unique because of that. I'm not saying by that that we don't need each other. I'm just simply saying that the our recognition of that need is not as great as it was then. Because our connection with our physical survival is not as great. Our need for connection for physical survival. News from time to time would drift in from the outside world. And people would talk about those events as well. But as a general rule, close community was their world. So you have a person represented by the dot there. And then you have his immediate community. Maybe that's his family and his next door neighbor. And then you have a little bit larger community that are people he would interact with occasionally. But those things were, those interactions were limited. It was a much smaller circle of people than what we have today. So let's think about this same person and then with the bigger circle there expanding to to everybody that he knew. But you see, as travel started to become more available, that circle began to grow. And people began to be able to interact much more broadly with a broader community and even all around the United States and all around the world. And I think all of us know that it's true that we can get information from anywhere in the world the snap of a finger or pulling out our device simply because we have different tools today than people had in the past. We don't live in the same kind of small community anymore. Our community is global, and especially for us. We live here in the United States. We have access to things as, as can't come up with the word, citizenship. As citizens of the United States, we have access to things around the world that is almost unlimited. We can travel almost anywhere. We can communicate with almost anyone. With a reasonable amount of money, middle class American living, you can survive and you can communicate without really any help from anyone. You think. It seems that way. That's how it feels. But is that really true? And you see, that brings up another thing. And that's the fact that as this circle of community grows, we are limited as human beings. So when we have a small community, when we have a small community, the, the capacity for relationship, the capacity that we have is, is smaller, but it's deeper. But as our circle of communication, as our circle of people gets bigger, the depth of our relationships begins to shrink. And so the broader that our circle is, the shallower our relationships are. And you see, this isn't just a smartphone issue. It's not just an internet issue. It's an issue about what we perceive to be valuable and how we pursue those things. I'm not saying that those things aren't involved. They are involved. But it's not just those things that make up the difference. Sorry, had an extra slide in there. You are sitting in a chair tonight that is the envy of the world. If you live in the United States, 
you're the envy of the rest of the world. I want that to sink home. Everyone, basically everyone in the world, even in the free world, would like to be a citizen of the United States because of the privileges that you have as a citizen here. And you are sitting in a chair tonight that is the envy of the people in the United States. And I can tell you that with confidence because I talk to people around the country all the time. I know what they're saying. I know what they're looking for. I did a quick, uh, we do call reports, and so we write out, anytime that we get a billboard, um, anytime we get a billboard message, we write out a call report, and we submit that to Christian Aid, and they keep track of who's seeing what messages and so on. And when I get done after I've taken calls for an evening, I'll pull out those uh, ones that are in fairly insignificant, and I'll stick them up in my drawer. I've been saving them for probably about the last year, year and a half. And based on my calculations, just the reported calls, not the ones that I didn't re- report the call, but just the reported calls, I've talked somewhere around 5,000 people in the United States in the last four years. I have not found one person. And I want you to think about this. I've not found one person that I would like to trade places with in the United States in 5,000 calls. What does that mean about the chair you're sitting in tonight? What does that mean about the chair that I'm sitting in? The value you have from being part of a conservative Anabaptist heritage is unmatched anywhere. You have a community around you. You have a community of people around you who are supporting you. And that's why I started this the way that I did. Because I am not independently who I am. I am who I am because of you and because of the community that is around me. And that's significant. And we have a broader circle than just the people in our churches. But the chair you're sitting in is valuable. And from that chair, it's easy to look out from the inside and see imperfections. We're not perfect. It's easy to look out from the inside. But if you were to get in one of those other circles, what would you see from the inside? And see, that's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing what people are seeing all around the country from inside their circle. And it's struggle. And it's pain. And it's broken relationships. And it's fear. Will you and your children pass it on? The topic this evening is not so much about who is or who is not a Christian. It is focused on what is needed to pass on vital faith from one generation to the next. And I want to get an argument out of the way to start with. You might be thinking, well, just being part of conservative Anabaptism is not the same as vital faith. Okay? That's fine. But belief is what structures culture. So we live in an Anabaptist culture, conservative Anabaptist culture. Or we have that as churches. The culture is not the belief. But unless the belief that undergirds the culture stays intact, the culture will not stand. So belief is at the heart of culture. Whatever the culture is. Somebody said it this way. that Culture is the the attempt to make what we believe a reality. And so we're trying, whatever we're doing, whatever we're trying to create in culture is the attempt to make what we believe come true or a reality. So many of those people don't realize, many of those people out there don't realize that they envy you. But the things that they're crying out for are the things that I have found as a follower of Jesus Christ in a, in a community of people who are also followers of Jesus Christ. And unless the belief that initiated our culture is passed from one generation to the next, our culture will not stand. You don't have to understand it perfectly. 
But as soon as that becomes an excuse to not try to understand it perfectly, you will lose it. You see, you say it in the song, I want to scale the utmost height. So how are you going to scale the utmost height? It's not going to be by giving up because you don't understand how to get to the top. It's going to be by reaching and reaching and reaching and reaching. So you have belief. And on that belief, you practice things. And so those little horizontal lines there are indicating practice. Okay? So you believe something, and this would be true for any culture, but when you believe something, you begin to practice things on the basis of that belief. And that creates a culture. And that culture might be made up of things that are not particularly tied to the belief, but your beliefs will affect it. And I'll say, for instance, mealtime. So you're hungry, you get hungry, so you have mealtime. So maybe you have three meals a day. Well, what do you do before you pray? I mean, what do you do before you eat? You pray. Why do you pray? Because of what you believe. And so that culture is made up of things that aren't particularly directly on the belief, but they are affected by your belief. You have a job of some kind, or maybe a business, and you operate that business on the basis of what you believe to be true. So the ethics, the values that you put into that business are on the basis of, of what you believe. And so a culture exists as a result of that. Belief is the life of culture. And when I say life, I'm talking, I want to explain what I mean by life just a little bit. What's the difference between a living body and a dead body? A dead body is one that has to be moved by external forces. Okay? So when someone dies, they have to be picked up and moved from one place to another. Life is when there's something inside that actually motivates and operates the person, the individual. And so belief is the life of culture. It's what operates the culture in spite of the influences around it. And those influences can come in a multitude of ways, but sometimes a result of change or the presence of another belief system. And maybe, maybe you ought to think about it this way. Think about uh, what we're trying to do if we send missionaries into a, into a heathen land. We're trying to change their belief system. And as a result of changing their belief system, we expect that a new culture is going to arise out of that. And so we're going to come into their culture and we're going to, to affect that culture. I got behind here a little bit. And we might overlap on some things. So we both eat and we both work, both cultures. And we're going to expect in that interaction for our influence to, to penetrate into their belief. And when their belief changes, then their culture will change. So if culture is breaking down, then belief is breaking down. So when we see signs of culture breaking down, then that's evidence that there's a changing in their belief system is happening. And I would tell you tonight that there are indications that our culture is breaking down. Technology, material prosperity, are simply revealing a breakdown in our belief system. I want to talk a little bit about what causes belief to break down. Start with a story. A beautiful woman was out for an evening stroll, and she was stopped by a voice from a nearby tree. Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden. Now I ask you tonight, what should the woman do? What would you tell her to do? You see, you know the rest of the story. But what would you tell the woman to do? Let's determine a little bit what the problem is because we know the rest of the story. Was it the presence of the tree? Was that the problem? If the tree hadn't been there, 
then none of this would have happened. Was it the fact that she had access to the tree? Was it the fact that the serpent was in the tree? God had allowed all those things to exist in His good creation. But two things happened when the serpent spoke. One was change. Eve saw that the, Eve saw the tree from a new perspective. She saw something different about that tree that changed the way she thought about it. And then the second one was choice. Eve had to decide what she was going to do with that new perspective, with that new thing. And had you been in Eve's place that day, your answer would not have depended on your knowledge. It would have depended on your desire. What did you would you desire about this change, about this new thing? What do you desire? James 1, 14 and 15 tells us that the root of sin is desire. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And you see, lust is a desire that is outside the plan of God. All that is in the world is the desire outside of God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Those are all desires. And change and choice expose our desires. But you see, change is inevitable because time is continually moving. So let's say that we could stop society. Let's say we could stop the influences that we're facing right now, right where they are, and just deal with them the way they are and get this figured out without any more change coming. Well, we'd still have a problem. And that problem would relate to time because you would get old and your children would come on the scene and they would have to figure it out too. So you have this movement of generations. So time brings this movement of generation. And then... Not only that, but because of that, and maybe for other things outside of our control, there's also the issue of change, which comes as a result of that. I'm sorry, the, there's the issue of the moving society. So you have the movement of time through generations, and you have the movement of society along with that. So in every generation, we're facing the movement of time, the movement of society, and the movement of generations. So we have change constantly happening. And that is exposing our desire. Is change the problem? I believe the key is our desires. Truth does not change, but times do change. So how is truth to be preserved and applied across the changing times? We must find a way to pass on a desire for the preservation of truth. There has to be a desire for that. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 6 to 15. As we were singing those songs tonight, it came into my heart that I believe the words of Jesus when He said, I will build my church. And I hope that you believe those things too. And I hope you believe that no matter how bad the world gets, that Jesus has the power that He can put into you to be victorious in your Christian experience. Do you believe in the power of Jesus Christ tonight? Do you believe that He can give you the power to build the church and that it can stand across the changing times? 1 Corinthians 3 Verse 6, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So then neither he that plants is anything, nor he that waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid a foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds. For no, other, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will be become clear, for the day will declare it, because he will, it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test every man's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built, which he has built on, it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. How are you building? the church of Jesus Christ? How are you building on the foundation of Jesus Christ tonight? These verses tell us that there's different ways to build. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. What will expose the results of our building? There's two things. There's the fire, which could be tested by fire, and the day will declare it. The day is is an expression of time. The fire is the nature of reality. The nature of reality will come to bear on the life that you have lived, on the life that you are living, on the decisions you are making, as as the nature of reality, the law of sowing and reaping, comes, comes to bear on the life that you are living, as time progresses, you will see what kind of work, what kind of choices you have made, what kind of choices, what your choices are worth. The test of time. The question is, what will withstand the nature of reality? What is the gold, silver, and precious stones? So I want to go now to just a quick look at God's plan overall. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth by His Word. He created man in His image. Created the human community. Well, let me stop. Let me go back and say He created man in His image. God created man with the capacity to know Him. That was what was different about man from the rest of His creation was that that man had the capacity to know Him to be in a relationship with Him. And then God said, it's not good that man should be alone. And He created woman. What does that mean? Well, we say that's the beginning of marriage, and it is. But it's more than that. It's the beginning of community. It's the beginning of the human community when God created Eve. Adam and Eve were not identical. They were different. And in each other, they would be able to see more of God than what they could see in themselves. So God created the human community so that they could, through each other, see a greater vision of who He was. A greater understanding of who He was. And Adam and Eve in the garden, before the fall of man, Adam and Eve in that garden could grow in their knowledge of God for eternity because He's an infinite God. And Dana and I have been married for 20 years. And our relationship has changed over those 20 years. It has grown. Why? Because we have learned to know each other. We all have a longing within ourselves to know and to be known. And that's why relationships are so meaningful. God intended for the knowledge of Himself to be expanded across time when He created Adam and Eve. But because of sin, that connection was broken. That ability was broken. So the sons of Adam have a natural tendency to selfishness. And that natural tendency to selfishness breaks down both the knowledge of God in themselves and the living community both. Our desire is centered around ourselves and our selfish nature destroys community. Okay? This is after the fall. But Jesus Christ came. The Word of God came to show us who God is so that we could know Him again. So that we could know who He is. And when people come to believe in Jesus... 
they begin to practice the things that he said and taught. And that creates a culture, a Christian culture. And through that community, the church, we see God in a new way through each other and we fix our eyes on Jesus and we learn to know Him. But what happens if our understanding of what it means to be Christian simply becomes the culture? Doing the things that Jesus said and taught. Getting ahead of myself here a little bit. Jesus is the image of God. The exact representation of God's person. In Him, we learn to know who God is. Through the knowledge of Jesus, we find the true humanity. We find what it means to, to really be human. And we find what it means to have relationships that are real and living. So through the knowledge of Jesus, in the person of Christ, we come face to face with what it means to be in the image of God. But here's the thing that I want you to think about and consider in relation to your life personally. Christ gave the ultimate sacrifice. As the image of God, He gave the ultimate sacrifice. And I want to compare that to Cain and what happened generationally after Cain as a result of failing to give the appropriate sacrifice. Cain found himself at odds with God, with the nature of reality, because of not giving the appropriate sacrifice. And God comes to him and says, sin is crouching at the door, and it's getting ready to spring on you. And it's going to eat you if you aren't prepared, if you don't do something about this. But Cain doesn't listen. Instead, he kills Abel. And in just a few generations, you have Lamech, one of Cain's descendants, who not only killed a man, but believed in an unhealthy amount of retribution as a result of that. He said, if God's going to avenge Cain once, then I'm going to be avenged seven times. Now you see how the whole concept has gotten completely twisted in just a couple of generations? So his son builds things from metal, which likely include weapons of war. doesn't say that in the text. But then what happens to, Je- to Cain's descendants? The flood. You see where that pro- progression goes? Let's think through it a little bit. We fail to give the appropriate sacrifice. Bitterness takes root in our heart. And the next thing we do is we destroy those who are making the appropriate sacrifices. And our offspring, generation by generation, takes it to the next level and everything is lost. And it all begins when we fail to make the appropriate sacrifice. And what is that sacrifice? Jesus said, Whosoever forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Because because Jesus knows that for you to really live in the image of God, you have to give up all of who you are to become like Him and to be part of a living community. So the disciples of Jesus apply His Word and it creates a community. A community that sees God in one another and sees God for who He is as a result of that. But the problem is that when the culture becomes what we, the the conclusion of what we believe it means to be a Christian, being part of the culture and preserving the culture is what it means to be a Christian or to be a disciple of Jesus. The teachings are still there, but they lose something that is vital to what it means to be a Christian. And that is the knowledge of God. Because in John 17, 3, it says, this is life eternal. So we're talking about 
something that's going to last, okay? What's going to last? Things that are eternal will last. Life that is eternal will last. That they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. The essence of Christianity is to know God. And the rest springs out of that. So I mentioned earlier that we see the image of God in the person of Christ. And I want to talk about that just a little bit using the Reformation. Catholicism was a practice-based belief system. They generated or they operated their faith on the basis of practices. You get baptized in. Doesn't matter if you're a baby. Doesn't matter if you have, you don't, it's, it's not a choice issue. You get baptized in. You fulfill the certain rites and rituals and you're good to go regardless of how you live. So it was the practices that were significant to the Catholic Church. I think that's one of the reasons why Catholicism has not changed as much as Protestantism. Because when your belief system is is more practice-based, you tend to not be as influenced by the society because you hold the practices even if core values do not exist. You hold those practices. And so anyway, that's for whatever it's worth. Protestantism was principle-based. So this is a little harder argument to make. But I think we can see it in, in Luther's focus. Luther viewed the book of Romans as the principal book of the New Testament. And he held that as being more significant than the Gospels. Well, what does that mean? That means that the teachings of, of Christianity or the structure of Christianity was more important than the person of Jesus Christ to Luther. And so it, it essentially was ascribing to a belief system that was disconnected, at least at some level, from the person of Christ. The Anabaptists held somewhat of a different view. And I think it's captured in comparison between Luther and Hans Dink in this summary. For Dink, Hans Dink was an early Anabaptist leader. For Dink, the living inner word of God was more important than the letters of Scripture. Dink held that Christ is the embodiment of the perfect person, never separated from God because he he has always done God's will. Thus does Christ serve as model. Luther taught the doctrine of justification by faith, whereas Dink's whole emphasis was put instead on discipleship to Jesus. His motto was, no one may truly know Christ except one follows him in life. No one may truly know Christ unless one follows him in life. What does it mean to follow Jesus in life? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Is it performing certain practices? Is it ascribing to a value system? Or is it becoming a disciple of a person? And what's the difference in those things? To be a disciple has the idea of emulation or copying, being like. To be like Him is more of an idea of being like Him in character. And you see, that is a key because what is going to make this book live is going to be when it is characterized by the person of Jesus. So he put Jesus put a character into his teaching that made the difference. And in this whole thing of practice and principle and the person, it does not eliminate the practices and the principles. Instead, it embeds you, it embeds them in your heart. To follow the person of Jesus embeds the principles and practice of Jesus' teachings into your heart. And you see, that's what makes it living faith because then it comes up out of who you are. Instead of being something that you have to do, 
It becomes something that you want to do. Because I want to follow Jesus and He has changed me. I want to give you four things that are necessary. Number one, following Jesus in life means that you have to, that you will do it voluntarily. It's voluntary. There has to be an engagement of your will. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, there was an engagement of the will. It has to be voluntary. There has to be proximity. If you're going to follow him in life, you're going to have to be close to him to follow him. It's going to involve time. You're going to have to be close to him. The more the better. Time. It's going to involve discipline. Put aside even legitimate things so that you can improve your representation of who he is. See, that's more what discipleship is talking about. It's talking about you're, you're trying to be like them in such a way that you represent who they are. It's not talking about like you're learning things that, and you go out with more knowledge. It's talking about you are being changed into the image of Jesus. So now I'd like to jump forward to about 200 to 250 years ago. So there was a movement of higher criticism and liberalism. And that brought a tremendous amount of pressure on the authority of Scripture. And there's a lot of people here that could probably talk more correctly about this than I can. But basically what it did was it broke down, the in people's minds, it broke down how true the Scriptures were. And so if you think about what Protestantism is, Protestantism is, is a word-based or it's a, it's a principle-based. It was taking the teachings of this book and saying, you know, if you ascribe to the teachings of this book, then it's good. Well, this was directly breaking down the backbone of Protestantism. And so some of a segment of Protestantism recognized what was happening and Protestant fundamentalism was born to save Protestantism. And I believe that we as Anabaptists have borrowed some from those thought processes to counteract some of the deadness in our history that we experienced. And I think there's two main ways that it affected us. You're going to have to listen carefully to this because I don't want to be misunderstood on this point. Okay? It brought an unhealthy focus on the text of Scripture that overshadowed the person of Christ of whom it was a testimony. This is not Jesus. This is the word of the apostles. Jesus said in His prayer in John 17 that He prayed for those who would believe on Me through their word. How did you come to believe in Jesus Christ? It was through the word that has been preserved as a result of the apostles writing down about Jesus. So is this book important? Absolutely. It's vital. But to simply memorize the text of this book will not make you a Christian. That's the distinction I'm trying to make. Simply saying this book has a lot of good values in it does not make you a Christian. Sometimes I talk to atheists that I think know this book better than I do. And they are not Christians. So what am I trying to say with that? This book comes alive when we experience spiritual renewal. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And unless you experience spiritual renewal and are guided by the Holy Spirit, you will not find the right answers in this book. You'll find a lot of things, but you won't find the right answers. And the only way that we can come to that place is to meet the person of Jesus. And Paul said that he met the person of Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it changed who he was and it changed how he saw the Scriptures. Jesus was there. 
within weeks. He was arguing from the Scriptures for who Jesus was and only a short time before he'd been fighting against it using the same book. Now the reason why I bring that up is this. Let's, as people, let's go to this book in pursuit of God. To know God. To know who He is. And let's ask Him to show us who He is. And through asking Him to show us, He says that if you seek Me with all your heart, you will find Me. It's amazing how many times that pops up in the Scripture. I think maybe it was in our Sunday school text today or close to it, it says that something like, if you seek Me with... Maybe it was a devotional reading. But if you seek Me with all your heart, you'll find Me. Or if you turn back to Me with all of your heart, that's what it was. If you turn back to Me with all of your heart, all of your heart is a lot. Remember what I said about an appropriate sacrifice. Here's the other thing that happened. It began a thought process that changes in structure could solve a spiritual problem. So the principle of Scripture, which was the line, the, the horizontal line, and the practice, which was the, I mean, sorry, the vertical line, and the horizontal lines were practice, are not enough. They're necessary, but they're not primary. Principle and practice will generate a culture. And we should have a Christian culture. We need to have a Christian culture. It's very important that we do. But when structure begins to become the focus, the first thing that happens is there are two camps. So, if one... Let me ask you a question at this point. Do we, as a church... Wait a minute. That went away, didn't it? Okay. So, do we as a church need, number one, less regulation... Structure, whatever you want to call it. Or do we need, number five, much more? Okay? Much less, much more, somewhere in between. Find your spot with your group and dig in there. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when structure becomes the focus, we, we, we start developing camps around where we think we need to be. And then... We do not demonstrate the character of Christ towards one another. And both sides of that spectrum generate a mentality that because you're inside the requirements of the structure, you're okay, and then there's room for excess. So you can be in the structure because this is what the structure requires, but you can live in other areas of life where the structure doesn't require however you want to, or at least within your own bounds of whatever your moral structure is. And so there's room for excess. And I would say that... So I'm going to share with you some of the current trends and issues that I see happening in Anabaptist circles. And I'm not focusing on Southeastern Conference. I'm focusing on Anabaptist circles with this. And all of these pretty much fall under the umbrella of individualism. And individualism, the fact that there's, there's signs of individualism in our churches... I believe is also a sign that we have bought in at least somewhat to a Protestant perspective about what salvation is. And I'm not going to dig into that because I'm running over time already. But we have, some, we have spiritual lethargy. Our discussions are not as focused around building each other up spiritually as they are around things like our social endeavors, our business endeavors, and the structure of the church. There are dwindling and fragmenting relationships in our churches. Things are replacing face-to-face relationships, and specifically things like social media. and The ability we have to connect broadly is affecting how we relate to one another. 
People leave churches to find or create structure that they feel is more compatible with where they are personally. We're more concerned about the conditions of today than we are about what matters eternally. And I'm talking about things that I see in my own life because they're a reality. They're part of what is part of my world. I have social relationships. I have structure. I have relationships in the church. And I see my tendency as a human being to go towards the things that are easy. And a lot of these things are easier. There's wrong desires like materialism, and being over, which is basically being overly focused on the material world. And I believe tonight, I'm here because the tech committee has asked me to be. But I want to challenge you, if you're my age or older, that the social independence that we struggle with because of technology, the road has been paved for that by us, by material prosperity. And what are we doing about it? And how much accountability are we providing on a financial level? Involvement with politics largely comes from a desire to keep life as we know it. That's the material world. Hedonism, indulgence and chasing after pleasure. Time is being wasted on the trivial, the foolish, and the profane. And that strikes home right here. What am I doing about it? I'm going to say that again. Time is being wasted on the trivial, the foolish, and the profane. There's sensual reading material. There's pornography. There's things, there's places where our minds go, where we allow our minds to go, that they shouldn't go. Why does that happen? You can change, you, you, could, pick your, you could pick your number there on that slide, and you could change the church to the exact structure that you wanted. The exact Everything about the church could be exactly what you wanted and it would not fix a thing from a standpoint of spiritual development and growth. There is something deeper than structure that is needed to develop spirituality. If you are not willing, willingly fulfilling and voluntarily going beyond the programs of the church, you are not a living church. Those are strong words. If you if you are not willingly fulfilling and voluntarily going beyond the programs of the church, you are not a living church. Because what is born and is alive is being motivated from within. It doesn't have to have structure to live, to grow. The structure is part of the growth, but it's not the key part. Don't for one second expect more from your church than you are being. Do you look at your church and say, if they would fix this or if they would fix that, then I could be a good Christian. Then we could fix these problems. Then we could have resolution. But you see, Acts 1.8 is not so much talking about evangelism as it is about your being. It's saying, Jesus says, that as my disciples, you will be a witness. That is a state of being. That's not a mission trip. That's who you are as a person. And don't expect your church to be more than you are being. Why do we need discipleship? Because when you build with wood, hay, and stubble, it doesn't last. It is easier to go the way of practice and or principle, but it will not stand the test of time. Gold, silver, and precious stones come at a tremendous cost. And God gives us the pattern of passing on faith in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Being a disciple of the person of Jesus Christ is the foundation of that. And that's what I've tried to lay out to you today. But you and I will have to make the appropriate sacrifice 
to be his disciple.